I invite you to open your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, last week, we bit off quite a bit. Uh, this week, we'll be focused on, on three verses. Uh, but these verses actually are the continuation of the message that was in Hebrews chapter 11. It's actually the, the application. The reason for Hebrews chapter 11 is to move us, to provide us the foundation for what uh, the writer teaches us through his word that we look at this morning. So we look at Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 this morning. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The word of our Lord. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Father, as we come, we come with thanksgiving. We come to be renewed in your grace, reconciled and, uh, and strengthened in our friendship with you. And we pray, Lord, now that you would speak to us through this word that you have given, for you have promised that the word never comes back empty, that it is at work shaping us, not only renewing us in our mind, uh, but shaping our lives. And so, Lord, we pray that you would do that work now. Grant us understanding, not only of the word, but of ourselves, that your word may do its work. This we pray to your glory in our good. We pray in Christ, our Redeemer King. Amen. One of the more inspirational movies of my youth was Chariots of Fire. It's still one of my favorites. In fact, the ringtone on my phone is the theme song from the movie Chariots and Fire, which every once in a while becomes problematic when it plays on the radio. I think somebody is calling me. As most of you are aware, the, the movie Chariots of Fire is uh, about the, uh, the life of Eric Little, known as nickname was the, the Flying Scotsman, who was an Olympic champion from Scotland, Great Britain, in uh, the 1924 Olympics in, in Paris. That's the focus of the film. Um, Little himself was remarkable, which is why they made the film. He grew up as a, a missionary kid, a man of tremendous faith and, and conviction, tremendous athlete, not only on the, tr- on the track, but apparently was uh, quite the, uh, the rugby player as well. Uh, but what people gained, uh, it, it, what gained his, him attention and continues to um, intrigue people uh, generations later Uh, was what he did in the 1924 Olympics. Many people have won gold, uh, but the circumstances for Eric Little continued to captivate uh, the the awe of of the world. Little won the gold medal in the 400 meters, an event that wasn't his best, an event that he wasn't even scheduled to run in. Because the event that he was to run in, the 100 meters, the the event that he was best at, was scheduled to be run on the Lord's Day, on Sunday. Little, a man of great conviction, 
and with great faith, had a, a strong conviction about the Sabbath. And he held his conviction, as I, I heard one person say at one time, with all of the determination of Chick-fil-A. He was unwilling to, to run and willing to forfeit uh, the, uh, the medal and, and the points that would have gone. Uh, and he, he gained a lot of pressure, but he held to his convictions. And then it was determined that he could run in a different race. He would run uh, a 400 meter, not his specialty, but something that he was able to do. He ran that, won the gold. Everybody in Great Britain was fed. But people stood amazed at the man who stood for his convictions and stood consistent with his faith. And that faith continued, because even after the Olympics, what many people aren't aware of is that he went back to China where he grew up as a missionary kid, became a missionary himself, labored faithfully and fruitfully for a number of years, and eventually died in China. But uh, as the, um, the World War II broke out and the Japanese in invaded China, Little was a prisoner in a Chinese prison camp and refused to be released even when the opportunity because he wanted to continue to minister to the Chinese people that he loved. And so he died um, as, um, from sickness in the, in the prison camp um, just a few weeks before World War II ended. That part of his legacy has continued on in, in other films, but people continue to be amazed at the conviction that he had. Now, in the film Chariots of Fire, relatively early in the film, there's, there's a scene that is somewhat fictional, but it's, it's kind of a composite to indicate the, the tenacity as well as the, uh, the strength of Eric Little. And, and in this, he's running a heat at his preparation for Olympic qualifying heat, uh, and it is a 400-meter run, but he is elbowed and, and tripped by one of the other uh, runners, and he tumbles into the infield while all the other runners continue running on. The man who is the officiating the, the referee of, of the race, who also was a, a coach uh, that became prominent throughout the film, he just he kind of yells, but quietly, get up, Letty, get up. And then Little looks at everybody, gets up, starts running again, and then one by one, with sheer determination, passes each of the runner and ultimately wins the race. The writer of Hebrews likens the Christian life to a race. And he says that it's, it's, it's more of a, a marathon than it is a, a sprint. Because he tells us is that we, we need to have endurance. As he, as he writes this, is uh, that... Um, you know, looking to Jesus for the, uh, he, he, it's, we're, we need to continue to run. We, we need endurance. In, in verse 3, he talks about growing weary and faint-hearted, which just comes over, over time and when fatigue and, and circumstances. And he's speaking to that, and he's motivating the readers and, and the, the, the Christians to, to continue going regardless of what it is that they are feeling and recognizing that they are faint-hearted. Circumstances just kind of disheartening, and they're, they're tired, and not only they're tired, they're, they are, are weary. It's, it's been said that the, the difference between tiredness and, and weariness is this. Tiredness is resolved by a, a good night's sleep, but weariness lingers on and, and just saps your energy and, and your motivation. And because of the persecution that these people had experienced, the opposition, the, the lack of respect, there were any number of factors that they were experiencing. In addition, just the day-to-day -day challenges of living in this world. We're in need of endurance because the writer of Hebrews is acknowledging that life is long and it's not 
particularly easy. And so he says that we are in need of endurance. And so one of the questions I have for you this morning is this, is are you feeling weary? Do you ever find yourselves feeling faint-hearted? The reality is that every one of us at some time or another feels that we, we just don't have the, the mental or the emotional stamina to, that we need to, to finish the race. There are times for all of us when we just think, I'm, I'm just so tired. And we grow tired of the, the many demands and the responsibilities that we have in this life. We grow tired of setbacks and, and discouragements. We grow tired of our own sin, seeing it and the what it does in our own lives and the lives of others. And every one of us is in, in need of endurance. And even as we're looking at this this morning, I recognize that it could be that you've had a particularly challenging week, or maybe you are in the midst of an unusually difficult month. Maybe your challenges go longer than that. It might just be a very hard year for you, and now you're feeling somewhat faint-hearted and perhaps a bit weary. But what we need to understand as we look at this passage, as we, we dig into it, is this, that in the midst of our weakness, in, in the midst of our weariness and our, our need for energy to endure, God meets us and promises to renew us and to strengthen us for the race that is still ahead. And the writer of Hebrews here says, look, there's a, there's a clear objective we need to run the race. We need to run the race with endurance. We need to run the race until the race is completed. And the race will be completed by every one of us. The question is whether we finish the race or whether we just, well, we, we try, uh, we opt out. But one way or the other, uh, the race comes to an end for us. And he's encouraging us to continue on and so that we finish the race. We finish the race strong. And in so doing, not only does he lay out the clear objective, which is to run the race with endurance, but he gives us both instructions and encouragements, enabling us to continue in the race. The instructions in one sense are simple, but they, they are profound. And we see them in, in this phrase. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which so clings so closely. Or as the NIV says, and, and I, I think it's, it's, it's a helpful imagery and, and truth here is, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And so we see here that he's, he's saying to us, look, to run the race, one of the things we need to do is we need to throw off, we need to shed the sin in our lives that, so, that, that clings so tight and easily entangles. I remember reading a number of years ago, the St. Petersburg Times reported a story of a butcher shop thief. A man had walked into a butcher shop, and it was kind of one of those old-time butcher shops, you know, that, uh, that uh, had barrels and, and things on display. And while he was there, whatever it was that possessed him, he decided he was going to steal a hot dog. It was a barrel of hot dogs that were sitting not too far from the door at the, the end of the counter. And, you know, and so um, these were, you know, the, at the butcher shop, they, they made the hot dogs uh, themselves. And so he looked around. Nobody was really paying attention. He reached into the barrel and he grabbed a hot dog and then headed for the door. 
And as he was heading for the door, which wasn't far from the barrel, he just kind of had this sense that something wasn't right. So he, he turned around and he looked behind him. And he noticed that the hot dog was not just a single hot dog, but it was a string of hot dogs that ultimately was 40 feet long. Somewhat startled, he then tripped over the door jam. And as he rolls on the ground right outside the store, the string of hot dogs ensnares him, wraps him up, trapped in 40 feet of wieners. The owner of the store came out and caught the man who was now already tied up. One of the other employees called the police, and when the police came, not only did they have a good laugh, but they took him in and they arrested him. But the imagery of this is really what the writer of the Hebrews is saying to us. First of all, that guy figured out pretty quickly, sin doesn't pay, certainly not worth a hot dog. But sin, no matter how simple we may think it is, no matter how innocent, no matter how little and insignificant it may seem, it, it clings to us and, and we get entangled. It, it trips us up. It tangles us up, just like it did the thief who was trying to steal the hot dog. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, the sin is not insignificant. You need to shed that. You need to put that to death in order that you're able to run this race. But we need to be reminded of just how significant our sin is. And Jerry Bridges wrote a, a tremendous book. It's called Re Respectable Sins, which obviously it's a, the title is not saying that our sins are respectable. But what he's telling us is that in this book is that we just have this idea of thinking that there's really bad sins and then there's the sins that I struggle with or that you struggle with. But listen to some of what, what Bridges says here. He says, the motivation for the book, and he's, this is early on, stems from a growing conviction that those of us whom I call conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with some of the major sins of society around us that we have lost sight of the need to deal with our own more refined or subtle sins. We can readily identify sin in the immoral or unethical conduct of people in society at large, but we often fail to see it in what I call the acceptable sins of the saints. In effect, we, like society at large, live in denial of our sin. As a, another writer kind of summarized what Bridges was writing, he says, look, we are apt to focus on the obvious ills of society and our attention to give our attention to those seemingly great sins somehow... It, it somehow convinces us that our small sins are acceptable. They're no big deal. And the reality, as Scripture tells us over and over and again, is that all sin clings too tight. It, it can trap us up. And then Bridges goes on, and he, most of the book is, is describing a, 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 you know, a sample size of some of these sins, which talks about unthankfulness. You know, with all the great things going on in society, the fact that some of us just we're not thankful to God or to other people. It just doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Uh, he talks about pride. He talk, you know, and he goes, things that we just don't think that are a big of a deal. The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, if you're going to run the race, you need to recognize that sin traps you. Sin will ensnare you. It will trip you up. It will keep you from running the race. And as it did the thief who stole the, the hot dog, it will make you miserable. 
And so the writer of Hebrews says, look, we need to, to shed that. But one of the things that he also says is that it's not just sin that we need to shed ourselves from, that we need to, uh, to, to run this race. He's, let us shed every weight and every sin. Now, some would say that those are, you know, they're talking about the same thing, weight and sin, but uh, most commentators, and, and I think he's, he's right, I don't think he's being redundant here, there are different things that keep us from running the race, from living uh, our lives with joy and energy and encouragement. Sin is one. But when the writer of Hebrews is talking about weight, he's being very general here. Now, we understand in the imagery of a race, it's weight. Very few people that are running the marathons uh, are carrying extra weight. Somebody wants to train for a marathon, they run, they train, and they shed weight. They'll watch their, they'll watch their diets because to run the race, they need to unencumber. When this was being written, the people would also have understood because they were familiar with the, the Olympic Games at the time. The Olympic Games had started several hundred uh, years even before the writing of this uh, letter. And they would have been aware that those who were going to be running a long-distance race, they shed themselves of every weight. And by every weight, that means every weight. The original Olympic Games, people stripped down naked in order to run. And so there are some things that, uh, that he's referring to here that are in themselves not bad. Clothing was not a bad thing. It's still not a bad thing. But there are things that are in themselves not necessarily bad that occupy our attention and our energies that prevent us from running the race refreshed and enthusiastic. And these things that hinder us are not necessarily the same for me as they are for you or you as they are for me. But each one of us needs to figure out what those things are. And, and some of the ones in terms of our culture, we see people that are way too preoccupied with certain hobbies. Hobbies are essential to an emotional and, and uh, to uh, uh, well-being and, and, to, um, and to, uh, to our health. It's the way in which we have relationships. Some people are so into their hobbies that they become consumed. You know, spiritually, we talk about them becoming idols. We have people that are overly enthusiastic about sports. So much so that the winning or the losing of their team changes their demeanor, their attitude, their outlook in life, angered if their team loses. So enthusiastic that nothing else compares when uh, their team wins. As some of you know me are waiting for me to say is, you know, all I will say is this, in, in our hometown, there's a bunch of drunken people because our school won a football game last night. I don't know what the statistics are now, but when I was in college and early in doing in ministry in Knoxville, Tennessee, when the University of Tennessee lost a football game, church attendance was down 20%. Now, we've been gone for the 20 years that they were a lousy team, so I don't know if that's flattened out or what. Uh, but, um, but the fact of the matter is, some people are just so consumed, and it's not just in terms of sports. Another one that I see so common in our culture is, is politics. Are politics bad? No. Just like there's no bad questions, you know, politics is not bad. They're just bad people who ask bad questions, uh, ask questions, and there's people who, who corrupt uh, politics, but politics is a necessity. But there are some people who are not even necessarily engaged in the game, but they are so consumed with this that it shapes their mind and their attention. And they begin to read the Bible 
and they view faith through political lenses rather than seeing their political views through lenses of faith. Some of them are a little bit more benign, perhaps. Several years ago, I stopped being a news junkie. I loved being informed. I enjoyed, whether it's politics or anything else, knowing what's going on. But I found myself constantly annoyed and even agitated. My mood would go with the flow of current events and it was having an effect on me spiritually. And so I rarely recently have watched the news. Now that may not be a problem for you. So it's not everybody must drop this and everybody, it's, the issue is that there are things in our lives that occupy our attention, that take our energy, that prevent us from running the race, from living the life that we are to do. One of the things that the writer here is doing, and the reason he's using this kind of a, the metaphor of, of weight is that we need to figure out what it is that may weigh us down that keeps us from running effectively. And what it is is different for every one of us, but every one of us has this challenge. And he's saying in his instructions, we need to figure out what these things are. Sometimes the issues are sin, sometimes the issues are, are not sin, but we are weighed down, which keeps us from running the race. Now, before moving on, I do wanna say this, is that there is actually good news in, in, this, in, in this instruction, even though it's you know, reminding us that we're all sinners, the fact that we're instructed to lay aside our sin, the thing that, that weighs us down, is a reminder to us that we who have now been born of God, those who, who have trusted in Jesus Christ, we are actually able to say no to sin. We are, have the ability to put sin to death in our life by the Spirit's uh, power. That part is good news, and it's something that we need to take seriously. We believe in the, we'll call it the mortification of sin, putting sin to death in our life, which frees us, enables us to run this life. And so the writer of Hebrews here is saying, look, run, run with endurance, and deal with the things that sap your energy and your endurance, which is sin and whatever other things that may be that weigh us down. Then he also gives us encouragements. You know, he, he says, first, let us run. And as one commentator had noted, is, is this, is the, the let us is in the plural. And it's a reminder that we are in this race together. Running this race and, and even endurance is not an individualistic achievement. All Christians need each other. Let us run this. The writer of Hebrews is actually putting himself in, in this equation. It's not, you need to do this, but look, we are in this race. Let us run this race together. As Ecclesiastes 4 says, two are better than one, because if you fall, a companion will lift you. And in Ecclesiastes 4.12, it says this, though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. And so one of the things that we see for encouragement is to recognize it's an invitation when you're running in this race. We're not running alone. We are running together and we are there to encourage one another, whether it's through the words or through our actions, we are in this together. But he goes on, let us run this race. And we see, even as this passage begins, since we are surrounded with this great cloud of witnesses. Now, cloud of witnesses is, uh, the, the word cloud, I, you know, I've been for a long time kind of looking for some deep significance here. 
Uh, but most of the commentators would acknowledge that this was just simply, you know, the, the, the language of the day. It's, it's poetic, it's metaphorical language that just means a lot of people. And it's referring back to the people that were listed in Hebrews 11, as well as, if you remember the writer, he says, I don't even have time to list everybody, but it's all of the believers who have gone before us. He says, this is like a cloud of witnesses. And the word cloud being poetic, they, they encompass you, there's a lot, they seem to have no end. Whatever you would build on in terms of the metaphor, but the point is that there is an incredible number of those people who have run this race and gone before us. And their lives stand of testimonies, not just, well, they ran the race and they finished the race and if they can do it, I can do it. But their lives are testimonies of God's faithfulness and God's grace that those that he calls, he justifies, those that he justifies, he glorifies. Those who are in Christ will finish the race. God is faithful. And part of the way he does that is instructing us and encouraging us. And he's reminding us that there are people who have gone before us. And the imagery here is that their lives continue not only to cheer us on from their heavenly positions now, but their lives are speaking to us. In fact, even in Hebrews 11, in terms of Enoch, says, though he be dead, he still speaks. All of these people, this, all of these people who are witnesses, those who have finished the race, those who have seen God be faithful to his promises, they're all around, and, and that's an encouragement. There's an energy that's involved and in, uh, included in that. The great Anglican bishop of the late 19th century, um, J.C. Ryle, in an essay that he titled The Christian Race, he, he writes about this idea of those who have gone before us. Uh, listen to what he says. The writer of Hebrews calls upon us to remember them in their troubles and to take courage. In other words, remember the people who have gone before us and, and the, the challenges that they had in their lives. Are we frail earthen vessels? So were they. Are we weak and encompassed with infirmities? So were they. Are we exposed to temptations and burdens with this body of corruption? So were they. Are we afflicted? So were they. Are we alone in our generation, the scorn of all of our neighbors? So were they. Have we trials and cruel mockings? So had they. What can we possibly be called upon to suffer, which they have not endured? And then he picks up a little bit later in the essay, and he continues, and he says this, Take courage, fainting Christians. You are encompassed with a great cloud of witnesses, the race that you are running has been run by millions before. You think that no one ever had such trials as yourself? Why is it happening to me, you might ask? Why is it trial after trial? You think that no one has ever had trials such as yourself, but every step that you are journeying has been safely trod by others. The valley of the shadow of death has been securely passed by a cloud of trembling, doubting ones like yourself. They had their fears and anxieties like you, but they were not cast away. The world, the flesh, and the devil can never overwhelm the weakest person who will set their face toward God. These millions journeyed on in bitterness and tears like your own, and yet not one of them did perish. They all reached home. 
every one of them, they all reached home. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to us and, and God is speaking to us and saying, look, we are surrounded by a great number, countless number of saints who have gone before us and every one of them faced whatever it is that we are, are facing. And they faced it by faith, which is the reason that they were commended uh, to us in, in Hebrews chapter 11. And because God is faithful and brought them through whatever they were bringing through, we have every reason to have confidence that God, who is, continues to be faithful, will bring us through as well. So that which feels like is just a hurdle that we can't climb, an obstacle that is in our way, we are encouraged by those who have gone before us. Now, at the same time, there's an important thing that we need to recognize. There is, even in their example, a, a hard truth. And the hard truth is this, is the path that we are on is not ours to choose. In other words, he's saying, look, everybody had their challenge, everybody had their difficulties, but if you look back at the lives of the people that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11 and are commended to us, now, some of them were tremendous warriors and they overcame and they were successful in what they, in what they accomplished. Others were rejected. Others were beaten. Others were martyred. They endured tremendous suffering. It was not theirs to choose their path and it's not ours to choose our path. In other words, we don't get to sign up and say, I, I like that victorious thing. You know, the guy who devoured lions, the guy who, you know, overcame things. I'm gonna sign up for that path. We'll leave the suffering to somebody else. We don't know reason for God's appointment. Sufferings are common to us all, but not everybody experiences the same kinds of sufferings. But what we do know and what God is saying to us through the examples of all the people who've come before, that no matter what is laid down in the path, no matter what you have before you, God has a reason for it. And through your continuing on in the race, and God is at work within you. You bring honor to God. You glorify God. You become an encouragement to other people who have to experience the same kinds of things. We don't get to choose, but the promise of the writer of Hebrews here is that God who is faithful will see us through regardless of what it is that any of us may be experiencing. So we have the encouragement of recognizing we're not alone. We, we are in this together. We have others who have gone before us. But there's one ultimate encouragement that is laid here before us in this passage, which is the whole essence of what the writer of Hebrews is, is trying to communicate. And that is that we run this race looking to Jesus Christ. I mean, again, here's what he's saying here, reading the whole passage. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which, seems so, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so well, there are many things that we can turn our attention to and that we can look at. The writer of Hebrews is saying that the primary focus that we have is to turn our focus and to look, uh, look upon Jesus. And this, in one sense, is good news because while there'd be this tendency for, and sometimes you may have heard it, and maybe you feel this, we're not looking to our sin. 
We need to be aware of that so that we are able to shed that, but we're looking to Jesus Christ, who is the author of our faith. In other words, who he is, is the, the word picture, uh, uh, is uh, the picture that uh, speaks to us because he is the object of our faith. He's the founder of faith because he is the object. He, he's the one who wrote the history. And, but the writer of Hebrews then giving certain characteristics of Christ and saying, look, we're to consider Jesus Christ. And he gives us certain aspects to, to continue to, to remind ourselves about Jesus. I mean, look what he says. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of faith. So we know about Jesus, who, who this Jesus is. And then we're told to be reminded of his attitude for the joy that was set before him. In other words, not everything that Jesus did brought him joy immediately, but there was a joy knowing that there was a better end, that whatever he endured, if he was accomplished, if he accomplished it, if he was faithful to that, he would find joy and it would bring joy to those who belong to him. And so his attitude is not just to look in the circumstances and be driven by whatever the circumstances come, but to look ahead for the joy that was set before him, for the joy that's ahead. You and I are encouraged as we look to Jesus Christ to see all the promises that belong to us as we trust in him. And while things may be difficult now or they may be difficult for you next week, ultimately, as we continue in this race, there is a joy that comes at the end of the race. And we are to be reminded of his attitude that led to his obedience and his faithfulness. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Sometimes I think we get so focused on the fact that Jesus who was God and knew everything that was going to happen, but remember the night in the garden before, Father, if there is any other way, let's go with plan B. That's a paraphrase. Um, but that's the essence of it. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Jesus Christ, despite the fact that he knew that he would experience incredible physical pain, unspeakable emotional pain, spiritual separation from God, his Father, for the only time in all of history. But because of the joy, he obeyed. His whole life was marked out by obedience. As we are encouraged to run the race and we are to set our eyes on the person of Jesus Christ and his attitude and then his perfection. But ultimately, what we see is this, is the writer of Hebrews wants us to see and focus particularly on what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. So he's the author and the perfecter of a faith and who he is because of the joy that was set before him. He obeyed and he endured the cross. And then as he picks up in, in verse three, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The looking to Jesus is not just, well, Jesus did this and so this is what I'm gonna do. That's, that's part of the equation because we find that Jesus lived perfectly. He lived the way that we're supposed to live. And therefore, obviously, if you live as he lived, then you're doing right as opposed to that which was a bit difficult. But the fact is every one of us missteps, every one of us sins, every one of us runs from the course at some time or another and we bring significant consequences into our lives and the lives of the people who are around us. And for that reason, Jesus went to the cross. He endured hostility. He was rejected. He was despised. But he went to the cross in order to redeem sinners like you and me, to redeem those whom God loved. And so we're reminded that 
as we're running this race, that Jesus Christ, it wasn't just that he experienced this physical difficulty and he pressed on, but he has accomplished, he has secured, he has the one, is the worst one to run the path. He ran the path that made the path to be able to be run. And now he, who said that I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, and has promised to be with you, his life, his death has paved the way. And we're told to just continually focus on Jesus. And I think the imagery that we have here is when we consider Jesus in who he is and what he's done is much like, you know, baby contests. We had, um, when I was last year of seminary, I was a chaplain for a minor league baseball team, the Astros minor league baseball team in Jackson, Mississippi. And when our oldest son began to crawl, he could crawl like fast. It was difficult keeping up with him. They had a contest one night to see who was the fastest baby crawler. We entered them, you know. It was like a whole bunch of diapers. We're seminary students. You want to give us free diapers? We're going to take them. Now, the story breaks down here because he sat there and he, he wasn't budging, you know. I, I think he could have beaten them all, but he just didn't care. Uh, he was, you know, too focused on everything that was going around and wasn't focused on me at the end. But, you know, the person who won, the kid that won the race is the mom was at the end as well and inviting. And that child, unlike my children, um, focused in a godly way upon mom. They were motivated and keeping their eyes on the one who loved them rather than on everything else ran the race because of the joy of being with her mother. We're told the same thing is that as we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ and as we consider him and who he is and what he has done and what he has promised and what he has accomplished for us, it is a renewal and it brings a second wind. Every runner recognizes has a time where they, you know, they're running the distance races that they just feel like they've hit a wall. Experienced runners just know to continue to power through it. And then sometime at some point in that race, they're just going to get this the second wind. They just now the, the fatigue seems to have gone. They've 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 worked their way past that. The, the writer of Hebrews is saying, look, when we are focusing on Jesus Christ, it is the renewal, it is that second wind that we need. And then we, on top of that, he says uh, that we also remember what Jesus Christ is doing for us now. Because after it talks about the cross, he, he ascended to heaven, where we're told that he is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for you. He is praying. He is cheering for you. And so the writer of Hebrews here is saying, look, this race is not easy but be encouraged because there's people who have done it before. Be wise in how you are running. Because the fact of the matter is, every one of us is going to get to a finish line one way or another. Whether or not it is because we complete the race or whether it's, um, you know, we, we get there and we're disqualified, the finish will come because death will come to all of us or Jesus will return, one or the other, but the race will one day end for every one of us. But by God's grace, we finish the race. The writer of Hebrews is inviting us to run this race that is set before us with the endurance looking to Christ. Always looking to Jesus. And the love that he has for you. So run your race.
be wise, be focused, be glad. Let's pray. Father, we give thanks to you this day for these words, words that remind us and, and validate our experience that sometimes life is hard and wearying. Words that remind us that you are aware of what we experience. Even as you point us to others who have experienced the same thing, which helps us when we feel alone or perhaps singled out. Remind us that you understand because in the person of Jesus Christ, you experienced everything that we have. but you remind us in him that there is joy that is set before us. Father, bless us with this. Strengthen us. Renew us. That we may run this race. That we may run this race together. We may run this race with you. To your glory and our joy that is in Christ. Amen.